Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Saturday 25th of April, Matt Fell taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where Matt takes us through the books of Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Matt runs the Relational Mission Gap Year Training Programme and is also currently doing a PhD in Theology. Let's take a listen to the session. Cheers Andy. Uh, hello everybody. It is a pleasure to be with you, although obviously it's, it's very strange. Um, and this morning, I suppose I have a bit of a challenge on my hands. Because not only uh, do I teach you guys who I can't see over this kind of slightly strange medium, um, I am teaching uh, three books of the Bible, uh, which would be a, a task anyway, let alone these three books, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, so I want to really do my utmost to serve you guys. Um, I love opening scripture and teaching it, um, and I love opening these books of the Bible. They are challenges, and they uh, present all sorts of difficulties and questions and things we have to work through. Uh, but in that process of doing so, um, we will uncover beautiful, rich truths and the Spirit who wrote these texts uh, with the human authors, uh, gave them to God's people in order to, to shape us and to move us and our hearts in love and worship for the Lord. Um, you know, as the famous verse from 2 Timothy says, all the scripture is God-breathed um, and profitable. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that man or woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. All of scripture, including these books. And so uh, I'm really thrilled to be opening them up with you. I've got lots to get to you this morning. And um, I'm going to really need the help of the Lord to do that and to serve you guys well on this medium. Uh, if you have got the note, it would be really handy for you um, be able to go through them. Uh, I've really packed them with information and uh, if I was there in person um, uh, with you guys I'd have a PowerPoint with a lot of this stuff on that you can follow um, but I think it it just helps um, I think the whole learning experience to have some notes that you can engage with so if possible uh, do that. Um, I've left space throughout the teaching for you guys to kind of have moments to reflect, um, please make use of the question uh, chat thing. Um, it'd be really good just to get a bunch of questions which uh, will allow me to serve you and the questions that you have and where you are at with this text. Um, I've also done a few things to try and make, uh, particularly our session on Leviticus Interactive. So I raided my children's bedroom last night and here is a, a little cow that um, Sadly, we're going to sacrifice a few times later on today, um, and we've got a few other things to help us um, get through. Uh, apparently, my voice keeps breaking up, Andy. Um, yeah. I wonder what we can do about that. Is that true? Is that are you hearing that as well? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Maybe 
go back onto the Wi-Fi, maybe, Matt? Would that be possible? Uh, yeah, let me just see. See what I'm on at the moment. Um, you know what? I'm not sure if I can at the moment, Andy. Okay, well, that's um, right. Do you want to, maybe if you switch your video off, the sound will be... Yeah. Do you want to try that? Yeah, okay, let's do that then. Um, <clears throat> Okay. Uh, in that case, without my mug to, to watch, um, being able to look at the notes would be really, really handy. Uh, so if you've got your notes available on the screen or whatever, uh, and you've got your Bible open, I think um, that should do, do us to get through this. Cool. Okay. So um, as I said, I love these books of scripture. Uh, I love all the scripture, but um, there's a particular joy of wrestling with these texts, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, because in these texts, the Holy Spirit sets out the gospel for us. Um, he gives us anticipation of all that Jesus was going to do for us. The Spirit instructs us in holy living, and he points a glorious picture of God's kingdom. And so I, I want to help us to read these books and to uh, receive life from them. They are so often seen as kind of uh, books which aren't life-giving. You know, how many Bible in a year reading plans have been shipwrecked on the rocky shores of Leviticus? Um, and so I want to help us read these books as Christian disciples. And that's going to be my focus in the teaching this morning. You know, we could do all sorts of really interesting stuff, thinking about the kind of the, the historicity of these books, thinking about the kind of ancient world and the, the culture that they're in. Uh, and there's lots of worth in doing that. Well, I've only got you guys for a couple of hours. And uh, the, the big thing I want to do, the important thing, the necessary thing in my life, to help you open these books as Christian disciples and receive the Lord Jesus and to receive the life that he gives us. So I want to start you off by getting you to think, getting you to interact. And so just take a moment, um, and if you can, jot it down. Because I think pen and paper just help the thinking process, the reflecting process. Um, take a moment to just think. What has been your experience of reading these books? Has it been challenging? Has it been difficult? Can you remember particular things which interested you or or maybe even, um, yeah, moments of revelation that you have from them. Take a moment, help down your thoughts. So in our first session, which will probably go until uh, 10, and then we'll have a, a good coffee break. And um, in this session, I want to do kind of two things. I want to um, just do a little bit of a kind of introduction to, to thinking about these books as Christians. And in particular, I want to... Um, Think about how the New Testament um, looks back on these books of the Bible and reads them. So I want us to learn from the apostles and Jesus how to read these books. And then I want to give you guys a bit of a tool to help you when you read, um, or really any Old Testament text, but in particular these. Um, and so let's start off by thinking about how the New Testament um, uh, navigates reading these Old Testament books. Um, and we, um, 
we sometimes hear kind of conflicting things um, about the Old Testament law. So um, num Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy are the final three books of what the Jewish people call the Torah, um, which is the first five books of the Bible. Um, and that's uh, the law. So uh, the revelation that God gave to Moses and to the people through Moses to kind of instruct them about who God is and his purposes for Israel and the way that Israel were to live. Um, and so um, the Torah or, or the law as it's translated in our New Testament um, is kind of, uh, has a bit of an ambiguous status. So um, you can uh, read say the Apostle Paul um, and he will talk about how he had a very negative relationship with the law as a Jewish believer. How uh, the law um, kind of seemed to almost produce sin in him. And in churches, it's very common to hear something along the lines of, uh, you have been saved from the law. Uh, particularly in, in kind of grace-focused churches, like the churches we tend to belong to in, in the New Frontiers wider family um, that you, know, you have been saved from the law and there is certainly something true about that statement um, like in the book of Acts Peter will say um, you know Jesus has saved you um, so that you can now kind of walk in a righteousness that the law could never give um, and but uh, having kind of Sorry, let me just uh, back up. I'm, I'm just going to, I keep seeing your excellent questions flashing above me. And I'm just going to put them to the side. I'm gonna, we'll come back to them in a bit. So, um, so uh, ambiguous status of the law uh, for Christians, you, you know, you've been released from that which once held us captive. Um, and if that's the case, if um, the law was something which held God's people captive, um, why would we then want to go back and read it? If it's a negative thing which we've been saved from, um, it kind of robs us of our motivation to read these books and to expect to find life-giving truth in them. Um, and of course that then shapes the way we read them, our expectations when we come to these books. But what we need to do is we need to get a, a nuanced understanding of how the apostles like Paul and James and the others reading these books, how they understood the law to function and, and ultimately why they thought it was a good thing even if it caused problems for God's people at the time. Uh, and I think Paul, the Apostle Paul probably uh, gives us the kind of the, the most wisdom on this. So um, I think on the second page of your notes uh, you have a number of passages from Paul's letters from Galatians and Romans uh, which are really helpful. So um, in Galatians 3, Paul makes a couple of comments about the law. Uh, in verse 24, he calls it a paedagogos, which is a Greek word, uh, which our English translations tend to translate as tutor. Um, Paul says the law was our, our paedagogos until the Christ came, in order that we might one day be justified by faith. So this word paedagogos um, had a very specific meaning. 
was uh, a role which was a little bit more specific than just a tutor. Um, a paedagogus was somebody who was a live-in tutor for rich Roman families. So um, say if I was a wealthy Roman back in the day, um, my kids, uh, we'd get a paedagogus in and this paedagogus would live in our household um, and would be responsible for looking after the children, for teaching them, for educating them, for being a good example to them. <clears throat> kind of think a little bit like a, a slightly um, stricter version of Mary Poppins. That, that's the image that Paul's getting at there. And so he's saying that the, the Torah was this paedagogos, this Mary Poppins-like figure who was to look after God's people as they were kind of being brought through history to prepare them uh, for the day when the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, would come. He gives a bit more detail in that chapter, a few verses earlier, actually, in verse uh, 19, he says, Why the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come for whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place by angels by an intermediary. So Paul there is saying that the law was given because, because God's people were sinful, they needed something to teach them and to keep them in check so that God's purposes could be worked out over time. And it mentions until an offspring would come that uh, Paul's talking about Jesus being born of the Jewish uh, people, um, the kind of the offspring of Abraham. That's the image he has in mind. So the law is this, this tutor to kind of uh, keep God's sinful people in order to keep God's purposes on track. Um, in Romans, Paul kind of wrestles with, with the law a little bit more kind of personally, particularly in chapter 7. Um, and he, he talks about how uh, the law um, not only kind of highlighted what sin was in his life, so receiving God's law pointed out to Paul that he was a, a sinful man, that he uh, was in rebellion to God, that he um, had kind of idolatrous tendencies in his heart. Uh, not only did the law kind of point that out, it almost seemed to make the situation worse. Um, he says, uh, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to cover if the law had not had said, you shall not cover. And he goes on in that chapter to say uh, that kind of hearing the law, hearing thou shall not cover, um, kind of uh, set his heart off to cover all the more. It not only kind of taught him what right and wrong are, it showed him just the extent to which his, his human heart was inclined to sin. But that uh, so the, the law has this, this tutoring role for God's people. It points out sin, um, but it also had a more positive role for the Jewish people. So if you remember um, when you guys went through the book of Exodus in chapter 19, um, when God brings his people to the mountain at Sinai, he says to them, you are going to be to me a kingdom of priests, um, my treasured possession amongst the nations. God's purposes for his people in the Old Testament was that the whole world would look onto them and see God's wisdom displayed in how they lived their lives. And so the law was meant to instruct God's people 
uh, to live holy and righteous lives in such a way that, that folks around them would look on and say, wow, there's something of, of wisdom, and truth and, and goodness in this. And Paul reflects on that too in Romans. Um, in chapter two, he's, he's kind of, uh, he's criticizing um, the kind of self-righteous Jewish members of the Roman church. And he says, but you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you are a guide to the blind, a light for those who are in darkness, an instructor, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Um, and he's, he's about to call them out for their hypocrisy. But do you see there that Paul uh, has a high view of the law it's the, it's, it's the embodiment of knowledge and truth. It's the, the thing which allows God's people to know uh, truth and goodness and, and to then be a, a guide to those who are spiritually blind, a light to those who are in darkness. So in, in Paul, we've got this kind of tension. On one hand, uh, the law is this good thing that is given to instruct God's people to help them live in a way that prophetically witnesses to the nations and cultures around them. But on the other hand, it reveals just how sinful we are um, and we respond to it. And it almost seems to make us worse in a sense. So let's summarise. The law, we can say the law was given for three reasons. To instruct God's people to wait for the true offspring of Abraham to come and to bring about God's promises to Israel and the world, to teach God's people that they are sinful, and to show the nations through Israel that the one true God loves his creation and is at work to redeem it. And so the Torah, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, these are good books, these are good truth that God gave to his people. Not only because it once played a role in the past, but also because it can teach Christians today and equip us for good living. And again, we see this in the New Testament. Uh, so let me give you some examples. Um, Jesus, um, when he was teaching his disciples um, the meaning of his death and resurrection, he would do so from the Old Testament scriptures. Um, it says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he taught them all the things concerning himself. Jesus uh, understood that he'd come to fulfill everything that was in these books. And so uh, to understand Jesus better, we can go and read these books to see how they are fulfilled in Jesus. And, and I like to think of that word fulfilled in, in two ways. One, that... Um, what they point to comes about in Jesus. You know, he kind of does what they were meant to accomplish. So everything we're going to read about in Leviticus, about uh, God's people being made holy, Jesus ultimately fulfills that. He's the one who ultimately makes us holy. But I also like to think about that word fulfilled as kind of filling full. Jesus, is, Jesus fills Leviticus full of meaning. He fills numbers and Deuteronomy full of meaning. 
that actually we can understand these books better than the original audience because we read them in the light of Christ. When Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees in John chapter 5, he, um, he accuses them. He says, you guys read the scriptures, you search the scriptures diligently. And they did, they really did. They, they, they knew their Old Testament word for word. As you search the scriptures because you think you have life in them. But they, the scriptures, testify to me and you fail to come to me. And I think this is a really challenging verse of Jesus' teaching for us to think about how we read the Old Testament. Because essentially he's saying you can read the Old Testament and you could study it and know the context of it, know what's going on. Um, word for word and yet miss the point if you don't see how it is filled full of meaning in the life of Christ. And so as we read these books, um, as we go through them today, we want to read them in the light of Christ. And that uh, doing so isn't kind of crowbarring Jesus into something that he isn't in. It's not kind of squashing the Old Testament text with the New Testament, it's, it's, it's uh, reading them as they were truly meant to be read by the Holy Spirit, um, who worked through Moses uh, to create these books. Um, and of course, we, we want to make sure we, we, we do the, the hard work of the historical context of actually, you know, what's happening in the text, uh, how does one chapter follow on from the other, that stuff's so, so important. But we also want to, we want to make sure we're doing that in the light of Christ. Can I can interrupt just right now? Yeah. 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 Um, so I'm just going to, I'm just going to, we're just going to do something a little bit different this morning. We're going to just have our break a little bit earlier. So we're going to have our first tea and coffee break just now instead of at 10 o'clock. Uh, just gives us an opportunity to sort out a few things. And hopefully we'll get the sound a little bit better after that. Um, all right, so we're going to have our first break right now. I know it's kind of in the middle of your teaching, Matt. I'm really sorry. Uh, but we'll pick it up straight after. And um, yeah, so what I did last time, which was kind of fun, was I said, uh, share what you're having with your tea or your coffee. What biscuit, what chocolate, whatever. Stick it in the chat. I'd love to see it. Um, I think I'm going to go and search for a Kit Kat myself. Um, but yeah. Put in the chat what you're having and hopefully we'll get the sound a little bit better after after the break. So we'll meet back again. It's half past nine just now. Um, we'll meet back at quarter to ten. So go get yourself tea, coffee, whatever, and we'll meet back at quarter to ten. Is that all right? Okay. See you soon. Thanks. Well, everyone, I hope you have had a good break. You managed to get yourself some tea or coffee or whatever your drink of choice is. Um, and you've got something something nice to eat with it. Just looking through, we've got loads of different things. Someone's had granola with grapes, blueberries, and Greek, Greek yogurt. Oh, very nice. Um, someone's just had breakfast. A few other people with granola. Um, someone's had some homemade cake, with some biscuits, um, bran flakes. Uh, I, I did try and go get a Kit Kat, but there was none left. So uh, I have just, I'm just on tea, really. That's... That's, that's all I've had. Uh, someone else is on Kit Kats, banana and potato cake, 
coffee. So sounds like lots of people have had some nice things in our break. Uh, thank you for being flexible and having uh, your break a little bit earlier so we could uh, resolve the, the sound and video issues. Um, we've, we've done a little bit of work. It's, we, we think we have resolved it. So hopefully the sound and video quality will be a little bit uh, better now as we, as we continue with our session. So again, apologies for the sound and video uh, quality. Uh, but we think we may have resolved it or certainly improved it. So I'm going to hand back to Matt and he's going to continue the session. So back to you, Matt. Okay. Um, well, this is fun, isn't it, ladies and gentlemen? Uh, welcome to, to my bedroom. Uh, I've had to relocate. Um, Andy, could you just do me a favour whilst I am teaching? If you could just work out a rough plan for the rest of the yep. session. Would be good. So I think I'm going to go for about 40 minutes now. Yep, that's good. Uh, and then try to work out for me what it will look like. If you could ping me a message, that would yep. be good. Okay. Um, sorry, everybody. I didn't feel like I was on my A game earlier on, just getting used to all of this. Um, so uh, where, let me just recap very briefly. We talked about um, challenge of reading these books, the, the kind of the way that Christians often think of the Torah, the law, being something which held God's people captive. So why would we then want to go back and read those books? Um, and then I've kind of said, well, actually, you know, Paul had a, uh, the Apostle Paul had an understanding that actually the, the Torah was a good thing. It was to instruct God's people. Jesus teaches uh, that he fulfills uh, the Old Testament law and he fills it full of meaning. Um, and uh, in your notes, um, no, it's not in your notes. Um, you, basically, if you work through the New Testament, the writers and the apostles again and again, they're drawing on the Old Testament uh, to see examples for how Christians ought to live, um, to show that actually Christian, uh, Christian love and service um, ought to kind of um, be even greater than the Old Testament kind of laws ever pointed to. Um, you can see in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus draws upon the book of Deuteronomy for spiritual warfare when he's in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. Uh, three times he quotes the book of Deuteronomy. And so this book has power. Um, and so uh, we want to make sure we um, are reading these books with the expectation that Jesus and the apostles had, which is not to say that uh, there isn't challenges whilst reading these books. There is. And so I want to just give you very quickly a, a, a tool, a structure for just how you approach these books um, and any Old Testament book of scripture for that matter. And you can find it in your notes. Um, I've got this jazzy page for you here. Um, and we will uh, kind of use this tool throughout the rest of this session and the next session as we go through these books. And this is uh, something I've put together with help of a young girl who's on the year out uh, course that I teach on. And she's a graphic designer and um, has become a good friend of uh, my wife and I's. And basically I'm just uh, employing her to make all of my notes look pretty. Because <laughs> uh, uh, she does a very good job of it. Um, so here, here's this tool, this way of reading scripture. Um, when we open the Bible, we want to read it with our minds on the story. We want to read it with our eyes of faith, with our hearts full of hope, 
and with a desire to love. Um, we want to be reading scripture, uh, not just as a kind of exercise, something for us to learn about and think about. We want it to move us and to, to um, stir our spirits. And, and so this is just four kind of aspects, four, uh, I guess, senses, spiritual senses that we want to have alert and alive whenever we're reading scripture. Um, and so let me unpack what I mean by these four things. So whenever we open the Bible, we want to have our mind on the story. Uh, we want to understand how whatever we're reading fits within the big overall story of Scripture. Um, and in your notes, I've given you a bunch of questions that you can ask to try and unpack that. Um, so what, what's actually happening in the story? A great place to start off with got a passage of scripture, what's going on? Do I understand what's happening? Um, where are we in the big story? You know, are we, is it before God's people have gone into Egypt? Are they slaves? Have they been brought out? Are they in the promised land yet? Are they in exile? Has Jesus come? Those kind of questions just help to kind of uh, put what we're reading in context of the big story. Um, you might want to ask questions like, how is the story being told? Is it, is it being presented as a history? Um, or is it kind of more poetic? Is it prophetic? Um, what's going on? And you could do things like, like, what would it be like to be in this passage of scripture? So as we're kind of going to go through Leviticus in a minute, what would it feel like to receive these laws? Um, put yourself, you know, in the picture, as it were. Can just help to keep our minds on the story. That's the first sense in which we want to have alert as we read scripture. And then we want to we want to be looking at the, our Bibles with our eyes of faith, not just seeing what's there in front of us, but with faith, seeing the things that God truly wants to reveal. Um, and so. Uh, what I mean by reading it with the eyes of faith is, is how uh, does this passage relate to Jesus? How does Jesus fill this passage full of meaning? Um, how uh, does it kind of point us to the Christian life and the gift of the Holy Spirit and what life in the spirit will look like? Um, does it teach us anything about the church and what the life of the church is meant to be? So here's some questions to help us read with the eyes of faith. How do the events, people, rituals or commandments of this passage find their fulfillment in Jesus? Um, and we're going to look at a number of examples today. Just, just to kind of say, I'm going to be using this kind of structure to read these books of the Bible this morning. And so we're going to test run this. So if this sounds kind of, oh, this is interesting, Matt, but um, I don't quite see how it's going to work. Hopefully we're going to get a bit of a taste of it uh, as we go on this morning. Um, so reading with the eyes of faith, how do we see this fulfilled in Jesus? Um, does it, this passage show us our need for salvation? Uh, or, or does it kind of teach us what the spiritual life is about? Is there something kind of prophetic in here about what it is to be a Christian? Those kind of questions. Um, then we want to read with hearts full of hope. You know, when we, we live in this world, we, you know, find ourselves in situations like pandemics or you know struggling with our, our work and our employment um, difficulties with our family our neighbors stories on the news of social injustice all of these things we 
you know, our hearts ache, don't they? Living in this world. Um, it's beautiful. God created it. But it's also under sin and death and, and spiritual darkness. And our hearts ache. And so when we read scripture, we want to be reading scripture to have our, have our kind of heart stirred by how God is going to fix what has gone wrong. When I read scripture with our hearts full of hope, show me, Lord, your purposes to restore and heal. And so as we read scripture, um, you know, what about our broken world does this passage highlight? And does it show us how God wants to bring healing and restoration to that? Um, are there kind of, and in particular, are there kind of hints or promises about resurrection? You know, that's God's ultimate healing act isn't it when he raises jesus from the grave and when one day he'll raise us with him do we see any hope of that and then finally we want to read of a desire to love you know a christian uh, is told to love god and to love our neighbor as ourselves um, and in fact jesus takes that straight from the book of leviticus and so how uh, does this passage of scripture teach us to love God and to love our neighbour? We want to love. We want to love our Lord. We want to love our neighbour. Show me how. Um, it's asking those questions. And so these four senses that we want to have alert as we're reading scripture are just ways of helping us, you know, kind of read it in four dimensions. Um, that it's a, it's a living text that the Spirit wants to teach us through. And I, I found this a really helpful way of just it's not a kind of rigid structure um it's just a kind of way of uh, being open to all that god wants to say so i hope that serves you and i hope that will help us as we go through these books pause for a second um just take a moment to chew on everything i've just said um has that been helpful have you any questions that you want to send in how does it make you kind of reflect on the way you've been reading scripture before? That would be good, good ways just to kind of process um, all that I've just kind of shared at you. I'm appreciating my little comments which come up. It's nice to have a bit of interaction. I, I, as, when I teach, I like to have a bit of back and forth. Uh, so that's uh, the best way we can do that like this. Cool. Let's jump in to Leviticus. Um, so Leviticus uh, in the Hebrew, if I can say it right, is Be'ikra, uh, um, and it literally means he called. Um, we call it Leviticus, the English translations call it Leviticus, um, because um, the Levites, the tribe of Levi, were those who were responsible um, to kind of teach this book and implement it. But I think calling it Leviticus is a bit of a kind of... Um, it's a bit of a, a bit of an error, actually, for the translators, because it can sound like this book was just written for the priests of the Old Testament. But actually, God calls through these words to all of his people. Um, and for the first audience, for ancient Israel, um, you know, every member of, of is the nation of Israel was to hear and learn and respond to this and play their part in acting out what Leviticus teaches. And so the Hebrew uh, name, he called, I think is, is much more, you know, uh, much more appropriate. And it highlights something that Leviticus is almost 90% the words of God spoken to Moses. 
Um, in other words, it's, it's almost 90% red letter. You know, when you read the Gospels, sometimes Jesus's words are in red. Leviticus would be almost all red. Um, and in more than any other book of scripture, this is the record of God directly speaking to one of his prophets, Moses, which is, you know, kind of should alert us to this is something quite significant. So what I want us to do is uh, um, I want us to kind of think uh, through Leviticus. I'm going to kind of take you through the book um, around those four senses. We're going to start off by kind of with our mind and the story. And uh, I want to help us understand Leviticus in the context of the big story, but also the story of Leviticus, what actually happens in the pages of that book. And this will be a, a bit of a roller coaster. We're just going to ride on through it um, and i've got a few things to help us kind of uh spring it to life a little bit this session is being recorded um and it would might be worth going back to you know in a, in a few months time if you're reading the book of leviticus come back watch this section of this class on leviticus to kind of help give you that kind of orientating um view to it or look over the notes so let's think about the big story in the beginning God creates the heavens and the earth, and within the earth, he creates a special uh, part of it, a garden in which he places human beings made in his image to be in relationship with him. Um, God is a God of relationship. He wants relationship with his people. Um, he makes Adam and Eve to have relationship together, but also relationship with him. Um, and yet, the tragedy of sin happens and humans rebel against the Lord. They alienate themselves from that relationship and God casts them out of the garden where his presence dwells. Um, and he, if you remember in Genesis 3, he puts a, a cherubim, a kind of a warrior angel with a flaming sword to guard the way, saying to, to, uh, to humans and to us that because of sin, um, God will not allow people to dwell in his presence. And so the story goes on and things get worse. And eventually God calls a man, Abraham, um, and says, through you and your family, I am going to fix all that has gone wrong in the world. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to bless you and through you, the whole world. So God starts a relationship again with some people. And it's a, you know, it's a twisty Twisted Tony's story uh, with Abraham's family. Eventually they go down into Egypt. They become slaves. But the Lord remembers them. He hears their prayers. He sets them free, brings them out of slavery, dramatic events of the Exodus. And he gives them a law to live by at Mount Sinai. He gives them the Torah so that they might be his people and live in a way that reflects that relationship with God, God's wisdom to the rest of the world. But whilst God is giving this law to Moses, top of the mountain, God's people rebel and they start worshipping a golden calf. Um, whilst God is there saying, I've saved you, I want to be in relationship with you. They turn from God and they build this golden calf um, and they fall into idolatry and God judges them. Um, and he says, you know, he highlights that they're, they're rebellious, they're stiff necked. Um, which means that they're kind of they're unwilling to kind of come under his yoke, to come under his um, instructions and leadership. Um, and this incident in Exodus with the golden calf 
demonstrates um, that even when God goes to such lengths to save his people, there is still this underlying problem of sin. Um, and that even when God wants to enter into relationship, um, it can't be a relationship like it was back in the garden. Things have changed. Humans have fallen. They're sinful. And so the relationship has to look different. And Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, is God's instructions for what it looks like for him to be in relationship, close relationship, with a people who are nevertheless rebellious and sinful. Um, God wants that relationship with them. Uh, God wants his presence to be there with Israel. Um, but because God is holy, he cannot, um, cannot straightforwardly live amongst sinful people. Now, I need to just reflect on this a little bit because um, sometimes you kind of hear preachers say that God, um, God's, because God is holy, he cannot come into contact with sin. Um, and there's something which is true about that, but sometimes the way it's taught is slightly unhelpful. Um, because it's not that kind of God is just a bit squeamish about sin in the way that maybe you get squeamish about spiders or, or slugs in my instance, hate slugs. There won't be a new creation in my mind. Got a big problem with slugs. Um, I see a slug, I, I scream and I kind of run, run away. God isn't like that with sin. God isn't, um, God isn't hindered by sin in the way that, you know, he kind of just can't go in there. Um, Rather, God can't abide with sin because God refuses to, um, to what's the word I'm looking for? He refuses to uh, kind of associate with it or to, to make it look like he's okay with sin and evil. Um, you know, if, um, if a friend of mine did something terrible, um, you know, ran over an old lady and didn't you know wasn't it wasn't an accident you know wasn't repentant about it and i continued my friendship with that person as if nothing had happened it shows it my actions demonstrate that i'm okay with what he did god refuses to uh communicate that he's okay with sin and so when he he still wants to be with his people um, but he has to put things in place which demonstrate that he's not okay with sin and that he wants to do something about it. And that is what the book of Leviticus is about. And it's interesting that um, endorse, yes, Melanie Jackson, that was the word I was looking for, endorse. God refuses to endorse sin. This is why teaching is a back and forth communal process. Um, God refuses to endorse sin. So at the beginning of Leviticus, there's a very interesting few words it's right there chapter one verse one god calls to moses from outside of the tent um, now i'm sat in my bedroom i'm looking at the street outside my house if i was to call to somebody from out of the house that would imply um my wonderful wife is just bringing me a cup of coffee um thank you laura um if i was to call to somebody from outside of the house it would imply that i'm in here and they're outside the, the opening verses of Leviticus uh, show that God is speaking to Moses, who is outside the tabernacle, outside the tent of meeting. Um, Moses can't come into God's presence at the start of Leviticus. 
He's outside. He's not on the guest list, as it were. And the Leviticus uh, is all about how, God, how God's people can, in a very limited sense, come in to God's presence. So that's the kind of the where Leviticus fits in the big story and kind of the overall what the book is about. God demonstrating what it looks like for sinful people to be in relationship with him in a way that he won't endorse their sin. Uh, he still wants to make a way for them. And isn't that glorious that this Lord, uh, you know, in his holiness, refuses to endorse sin and yet still wants to have a relationship with sinners and teach them and change them. Now, this is good. This is good stuff. So let's think about what that then looks like in practice. Um, and uh, next page of your notes, which looks like this, gives you a detailed um, account of what the book of Leviticus looks like, the overall structure of it. Um, and it'd be worth just glancing at that. So God gives three ways in which God, in which his people can have a relationship with him. Um, and these are rituals, things that the Israelites were to do, significant acts which uh, would teach them, have kind of a spiritual effect to them. And they were to repeat and they had to be really careful as to how they, they did them. So uh, a ritual isn't just a kind of any old action it's a very prescribed detailed action so god gives them the rituals he gives them the priesthood um, the, Le 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 levites who are to represent god to the people and the people to god who are to administer the tabernacle the tent of meeting to teach god's people and then he gives them laws purity laws um, in particular and the structure the way the book is structured um, is chapters one to seven um, deal with uh, rituals and so do chapters 23 um, I'm gonna do it like this so chapters one to seven and then chapters 23 to 27 um, and then chapters eight to ten address the priesthood but so does chapters 21 to 22 um, and then chapters 11 to 15 give us purity laws and then chapters 18 to 20. And so there's this kind of mirroring process which goes on um, throughout the book. And then in the centre, there's this kind of hinge moment, two chapters, chapters 16 and 17, where a very special ritual is described. And we'll get to that in a bit. So let's, um, let's go through this and uh, I'll, I'll, we'll have some fun unpacking one or two of these bits. Um, what time did we say we're going to break next, Andy? Uh, 10.45. 10.45, great. Okay, we've got time. Cool. Okay, it's great. Um, okay, cool. And then after that, we'll have one long session or two? Yes, after that, we'll have one long session of an hour to hour. Okay. To finish yet. Okay, cool. Right. Um, okay, great. So let's uh, work through some of, let me just unpack some of these uh, ways that God gives his people to be amongst them. Uh, I can't take you through every one of them, obviously, because we'd be here all day. Um, but um, if I can kind of instruct you in one or two of them, it should give you some kind of 
just a bit of familiarity for when you read through the book uh, yourself. Um, but to kind of introduce it all, um, the, the book of Leviticus kind of focuses around the tabernacle, this tent that God had instructed the Israelites to build at the end of Exodus. Um, and God had been really specific in the details of the whole thing. Um, and this was the kind of the, the epicenter of his relationship with them. It was um, where his presence would dwell in the innermost part of the tent. Um, and the whole thing was set up to kind of teach God's people. It was like a audio visual um, kind of learning center for God's people. Um, and one day when the Israelites build the temple, it's a big version of the tabernacle. Um, and here is a beautiful illustration that I did for you last night on the tabernacle. So um, let me hold it back here so you can see. Um, so this outer box here was like a fence, a big curtain, which went around the whole thing. And you have uh, the gates here, um, which would allow you into the courtyard. And this was open aired, so there was a fence around it, but um, there's no ceiling on it. And so you would walk in and there was a couple of three items of items within there. First off here was a big altar, which was essentially like a huge barbecue, a barbecue with horns on each side, um, on each corner. So it was, it was a kind of rectangle. The fires would be burning all of the time. Um, and whenever you hear of a, an animal being killed and then burnt on the altar, this is where that's going down in the book of Leviticus. Uh, a little further beyond that, there was a huge uh, bronze basin um, and it was filled with water. It was like a giant bathtub. Um, and sometimes uh, our Bible translations refer to it as a sea, which is a bit odd. And I've never quite worked out why that's the case, but there you go. Um, uh, so this was a big old bathtub used for washing various things. And then inside the courtyard, there was a tent, beautiful looking tent. Um, and uh, you can read about the description of it in Exodus. And there's lots of kind of meaning in there, which sadly we don't have time to unpack. But if you went inside the tent, there were two compartments to it. Um, and it was very dark inside. So this first compartment here, got a couple of things. You've got a table with some manna, the bread that God gave the people in the wilderness. Um, you've got a lampstand with seven um, lamps burning on it, uh, which would uh, give light so you could see. And then there was a altar where incense was burnt, and that was to be burning continually. These two things were to be burning continually. And then there was a big, thick curtain, and on that curtain uh, was embroidered uh, cherubim, warrior angels. Um, now, do we remember where we've heard those in the story before? They were guarding the Garden of Eden when God kicked Adam and Eve out away from his presence. Because behind this curtain with the warrior angels is God's presence. This is God's throne room in here where God promised to dwell. And the Ark of the Covenant is in there um, with the law that Moses received written in it. <coughs> Okay, so um, all of our, our rituals um, in Leviticus and the work of the priesthood revolves around this tabernacle. Um, and so let's, uh, let's pick one of the, the rituals from the first seven chapters, one of the offerings, the sacrifices, 
um, different translations, use different words. Um, let's pick, see they're all quite fun. Um, let's just go with the sin offering. Yeah, let's go with the sin offering. So there's two um, sacrifices for various sins. Uh, the sin offering, which was a sacrifice, um, you can find it in chapter six, uh, which was for unintentional sins. So get this, this is a, a, sacri a sacrifice that you had to make when you were convicted of a, something that you did which was sinful that you didn't intend to do at the time. So um, I think what it means by that is, uh, it's not just that you kind of, uh, I don't know, you stepped on an ant by accident and then you feel bad about it afterwards, or you, you know, you ran over your neighbor's hedgehog, which is actually quite a personal story for us. I won't go into it right now. Uh, but you know, like you, you've done something by accident. It, it does include that, but I think it also includes those moments where, um, you know, you, you did something selfish and you didn't see the consequences of it. And then later you, you do and you're convicted by it. So this is a, you're convicted by that and you're good as a light and you want to you know that your relationship with the lord's not right as a result so you go to the tabernacle to make the sacrifice <clears throat> what you're instructed to bring is oh no where's he gone where's my fluffy little cow gone oh that's sad <laughs> i've stolen my son's fluffy cow and uh for this very moment and he's gone. Oh well, um, this was going to be a donkey for later on, but for the purposes of this teaching, this is a um, oh, it's a bit wet. This is a uh, this is a bull, and so you would bring um, your bull to the entrance of the tabernacle, and a, a priest would come out and meet you, um, and you would lay your hand on the head of this animal, and you would confess your sins. And in that moment of laying your hand on the head of the animal, you were saying, I associate with this beast. This represents me. And it would be yours. You would have either bought it or raised it. Um, this is, you know, this belonged to you, this animal. You're saying, I associate with it. The priest would then kill it. Poor cow. Um, and... Um, would then uh, dismember it. It's pretty uh, gruesome business, the book of Leviticus. It would, it would cut it open. Um, and what it would do is it would take the fatty parts. Uh, so that what Leviticus means by the fatty parts is the choice bits of the meat inside. Um, and it would wash them. And then it would, the priest would burn them on the altar. And what's going on in all of this is it's it's taking the kind of the innermost part of this animal, which represents me, the sinner, washing it and then offering it to the Lord. And it's being burnt up. It's being consumed. It's being destroyed um, as a kind of uh, saying, kind of uh, saying to God, like, for my innermost part, I'm sorry and I'm dedicating myself back to you. I need to be washed, I need to be cleansed, um, I need to die, uh, and I'm yours. Um, and then it would be burnt up on the altar here. The priest would then take some of the blood of this sacrifice, 
representing the life of the animal. Leviticus says that the life of an animal is in its blood. The blood represents the life of this animal. And remember, this animal represents me, the sinner. This is my blood. This is my life. And the priest would take it inside to the, the tent of the inner tent, the holy place, and would uh, put some of the blood on the base of the altar uh, of incense. Um, and if you think about the altar of incense, um, if you've ever seen incense burn in like a Catholic church or an Orthodox church, um, you can see the, the smoke wave up and it, and it smells, well, some people say it smells, it smells nice. It's kind of a bit of a subjective thing. Um, but the altar of incense represents prayer. Whenever you read it, incense in scripture, think prayer. This is a picture of prayer, of the prayers of God's people rising up to heaven and being a smell that he enjoys. And so the blood of this animal is poured out at the base of this altar. So the life of this person, this sinner, is being offered up in prayer to God. Um, then the priest would take the leftover parts of the animal, the skin, um, rests of the organs, uh, the interns, where all the poo was, the nasty bits, the dirty bits, and would take it outside of the tent outside of the Israelite camp and dump it and that would say that you know there is there is a nasty dirty sinful part of this person which needs to be cast out from God's presence so in in one ritual there you see there's this wealth of things going on that it represents um but Leviticus does this slightly frustrating thing that it never really explains itself. Leviticus itself doesn't do what I've just done for you and explain the meaning of that text. And there's something interesting about that. It's a bit of an aside, but I, I think Leviticus invites the reader to understand it in, in light of the rest of scripture. Um, so there's a, an old kind of theological principle that scripture interprets scripture. The best resource for understanding what one passage of scripture means is what the rest of scripture might say about it. Um, and that's essentially what we're doing here. That's with our minds on the story and kind of bringing in our eyes of faith as well. So there's these uh, various offerings that Leviticus gives um, for people to be right with God. And some of them are for forgiveness of sins, the sin offering, the guilt offering. Some of them are just to worship the Lord. So the burnt offering um, is uh, a, really a picture of just a worshipper saying, I'm, I'm all yours, Lord. Um, the grain offering, sometimes called a thanksgiving offering, as uh, a way of saying thank you, Lord, for our harvest. The peace offering um, is a wonderful one where somebody would bring an animal um, and it would be killed and they would then get to eat some of that animal in the presence of God. This is wonderful picture of having dinner with God. In Leviticus, God is essentially saying, come dine with me. And it's interesting with the peace offering, that offering is kind of seen as one of the most, uh, one of the most holy, one of the most important. And it's picked up again and again. Um, and so in chapter 19, when God says to his people, be holy like I'm holy. He gives a list of things that he considers holy and having a meal with God is one of those things. Um, it's this wonderful invitation. Come dine with me. Um, 
then uh, we've got the priesthood. Um, and so we, uh, Leviticus kind of describes how a priest is consecrated, how oil is poured upon them, how they have to make sacrifices for their own sins before they can do their work. Um, in chapter 10, there's a rare bit of narrative in the book of Leviticus where two of Aaron's sons, uh, uh, Nabab and Abihu, um, they disregard God's instructions for how to bring the sacrifices about. Um, and they do some some dodgy things with some of the fire in the altar and God kills them. And it's a stark reminder that um, although, you know, with Leviticus, God is opening the doors. He's saying, come dine with me. There's still this reminder that these are stringent uh, rules and instructions for how sinful people come into God's presence. And this is grace. This is you don't don't mess with this this is a this is a wonderful opportunity you can't play with fire which is what they do um you then move towards the purity laws um and so chapters 11 to 15 um we're told that certain animals are clean and certain animals I've got my little piggies we did farm week you know, as a family this week in our kind of kids homeschooling uh, certain animals like pigs are unclean um, and a weird thing is we just don't really know why certain animals are clean and why others aren't we can guess and there's been some really good guesses out there um, you know to do with kind of hygiene uh, various kind of symbolic things kind of reference to the culture around uh, but it's all kind of um, well-informed guesswork um, but what's interesting, I think, about these verses is, is God saying that in a fallen creation, th there's a need to demarcate, to, to set a line, as it were, um, between um, things which are, have been brought back to God and things which are still far away, clean and unclean. And so you see this throughout scripture. You see that God um, demarcates, you know, the Jewish people, the Israelites, from uh, the pagans, from the Gentiles. Um, but what's interesting is when God does this, when he separates clean from unclean, um, in the big story of scripture, he does so as a moment in the story which he then wants to overcome. So think about it. God separates the, the Israelites and the Gentiles. Um, he says, you know, you're not to mix. But then later down the story, once uh, the father sent the son, that difference is overcome. And the pigs, you know, in Leviticus are unclean. But then after Christ has died for sins and God begins to reconcile, they're made clean. And we can have bacon sandwiches. Hallelujah. And so God... When God does this separate clean from unclean, it's to, it's, it's to say this needs to be dealt with and I'm going to deal with it. Um, somebody asked the question as to whether pigs were seen to be unclean before the, the law was introduced. And I, 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 think, I, I think they were fair game. I think they were fair game because when God gives the instruction to Noah to eat all meat, um, he doesn't introduce any sense of clean unclean. Oh, does he actually? Because I think Genesis does mention clean and unclean animals. 
Yeah, interesting question. I don't know. I'll, I'll have to think about that a bit more. But I think that the kind of the, the principal point I'm going to take you to take is this introduction of clean and unclean is this moment in the story that God diagnoses a problem that he wants to then overcome over time. Um, so rituals, priesthood, purity law, these things are then picked up again later on in the book. Um, and so uh, the rituals at the start of the book are for individuals. The rituals at the end of the, uh, towards the end of the book, chapters 23 to 27, are for the whole of God's people. They're big festivals and customs that unite God's people and help remember all that God had done for them. Um, and these are wonderful, some of these festivals, really worth uh, kind of taking the time just to work out what's going on there. Um, let me think if I can pick one of my favourite ones. It's got to be chapter 25, the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. So um, every uh, 50 years, um, God's people were to have a year of Jubilee, celebration. Um, and in this wonderful 50th year, all debts between God's people were cancelled. So say Andy had been a bit of a scallywag, got himself into trouble, um, lost all of his money. He could come to me um, and take a loan out because I'm a prosperous, uh, you know, Benjamite, say. Um, and I would give him a loan. But when the year of Jubilee came, I'd have to cancel that loan, even if he hadn't paid half of it back. And if Andy came to me the year before Jubilee, I, I would be instructed by God's law to still give him the loan knowing that I'm not going to get most of it back. Um, say Andy got into even more trouble and had to sell his land, his family's property, uh, and also had to come into slavery in my household in order um, for him to kind of get by. Um, again, in the year of Jubilee, Andy would be given his freedom back, no longer a slave, and he would be given his family's property to go back to and live on. Um, so this year of Jubilee is this celebration um, every 50 years of restoration of all that had been lost due to people's kind of bad choices and decisions. So it's a wonderful picture of how God wants to restore all that is damaged and broken. So the Israelites had these festivals, these customs um, to kind of remember the story, to live in it and to, to kind of show God's holiness to one another. Um, there's more laws for the priests, uh, chapters 21, 22, um, because they represent God to the people, they had to live uh, lives which really demonstrated, prophetically demonstrated God's holiness and cleanliness and righteousness. Um, and so there's instructions for the, the Levites there. And then um, at the end, uh, whereas we had the kind of purity laws in chapters 15, uh, 11 to 15 kind of saying what's clean and what's unclean um, in chapters 18 to 20 we kind of hear about behavior how uh, actions like certain behaviors and actions which are clean and unclean righteous or not um, and so in chapter 18 god uh, prohibits a number of sexual relations which are unlawful in chapter 19 he com gives commandments for holiness he says you know, as I'm holy, you need to be holy. And you have that wonderful verse, love your neighbour as yourself, which is there in Leviticus 19. 
And then in chapters 19, uh, 20, there's punishments given. Uh, punishments for child sacrifice um, and for sexual immorality. But going back to chapters 16 and 17, at the heart of Leviticus, these, these hinged chapters, um, there was a very special ritual that was given to God's people, the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was um, essentially a, a big festival where a sacrifice was made for the whole nation together. And it's described in these two chapters, and very quickly, um, I'm going to kind of get to the heart of it. There's a number of sacrifices which had to be made for the priests who were about to conduct the whole thing. Um, but the heart of um, heart of the, the ceremony, um, there was a sacrifice of two goats. Here they are. I've got them for you. I'm going to position them this way. Um, <coughs> goat number one um, was killed in the tabernacle. Um, and the blood was taken um, into the tent and not poured out at the, the, at the incense altar, but was taken by the priest into the very Holy of Holies, where God's presence was. And it was only on this one day of the year that the priest could enter into there. Any other time that a priest went in, they would be struck dead by the Lord. But on this one day, having... Um, sacrificed this goat for the sins of the whole people the priest could go in and pour the blood out on top of the ark of the covenant um, to say you know our people are sinful they deserve death here is their life poured out before you lord and god would accept this and the priest would live and would go back out um, the other goat would have the sins of the people confessed over it so the leaders would lay their hands on the goat's head, which confess the sins of God's people. And the goat would then be led out of the camp, um, out of uh, the dwelling where the Israelites were, into the wilderness, and would be released to kind of wander off on its own. Um, and this represents, represented the sins of God's people, which had been confessed onto the goat, being separated from God's people, separated from God's presence. So if you think about uh, that wonderful verse in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does the Lord remove our transgressions from us. Um, this is a picture of that, God taking um, our sinful behaviour and casting it far away from his presence, but also from us, taking it and hiding it from us. It's a wonderful picture of what atonement is about. And that word atonement is used throughout the book of Leviticus. But this is a day which celebrates God's atonement. And the way to understand the word atonement is um, it's kind of actually how it sounds, really. At one made. At one made. Atonement is about God and his people being made one again. The sin which had kind of come between us and separate us is being dealt with so that we may be one with our Lord. Okay, that is a kind of uh, roller coaster tour through the book of Leviticus. Um, let's just take a moment just to kind of uh, reflect on the book and some of the things we've heard with, with the eyes of faith, with hearts full of hope. 
and of a desire to love. And this just takes some things that the book in general teaches us. Um, you know, when we when we read the book of Leviticus with the eyes of faith, we see a God um, who is holy, but who still wants relationship with his people. And of course, the greatest expression of that is in Jesus Christ, who comes to dwell amongst sinners, comes to live amongst us, uh, who sits and, you know, has dinner. Um, you know, remember the peace offering? Come and have dinner in the presence of the Lord. Well, the Lord in, in the incarnation comes to have dinner with sinful people like tax collectors and prostitutes. Um, there's a wonderful kind of wonderful picture of God's holiness at work in Leviticus, which helps us kind of appreciate the life of Jesus all the more. Because those things which Leviticus showed to be sinful and unclean and kept at a distance and welcomed in only on kind of very stringent rules, um, Jesus shows how God, you know, eventually works to overcome them. And we appreciate what Jesus does for us all the more by knowing the book of Leviticus. And of course, on the cross, Jesus perfectly atones for us. When he dies, the temple curtain, the curtain in the temple, which uh, is based on the tabernacle, if you remember, uh, the curtain with the warrior angels on it, separating us from God's presence, it's torn. Because in Jesus' death, the perfect atonement is made. The way is open for us to go. It's a wonderful picture. Um, of course, in his death on the cross, um, Jesus takes our sin. Um, he represents us. You know how the animals, um, you know, here's a little sheep that I've got. You know, if I was bringing him to sacrifice, I would lay my hand on his head, confess my sin. I would touch the flesh of the animal to associate with it. Well, in the incarnation, the Son of God becomes a human. He becomes flesh. He touches our flesh becomes a part of our race so that our sin might be associated with him. And on the cross, he dies, he enters into death, the ultimate wilderness, and he takes our sin far away from us. Um, he's like the priest going behind the curtain on the day of atonement. Um, Leviticus gives us all these wonderful pictures for us to appreciate what Christ has done for us when we read it with the eyes of faith. Leviticus gives us a picture of what restored relationship with God looks like. And so when we read it with our hearts full of hope, we get a glimpse that one day we will have a, a relationship with God, which is far greater than anything we see in Leviticus. Anything we know now, we will see him face to face, is what uh, the book of Revelation says. Um, he will be our God with us, wiping away every tear. And in the festivals in particular, God's people come together. And remember the festival of Jubilee, um, where Andy had all his debts forgiven and got to enjoy his family's land, was no longer a slave. Um, that's a picture of what God's restored creation will be like one day. Our hearts filled with hope as we read Leviticus. And of course, Leviticus teaches us how to love. Uh, how to love God, uh, to respect that he is holy, to honour and fear him. Um, but it also teaches us how to love our neighbour. Love your neighbour as you love yourself. Um, Jesus, when he wanted to teach the disciples how to love, he drew on the book of Leviticus. Um, and it 
it can teach us it can give us so much to instruct our, our living day by day Woo, leviticus there we go uh take a moment what um what's really moved you from that when um when jesus taught the disciples on the emmaus road about his death and resurrection from the old testament they said their hearts burned within them has your heart burned at all um it's my sincere prayer that it has what made it burn jot that down be a good thing to remember and also uh having gone through all of that what do you want to go back and look at in leviticus what are you going to go and, and study and find out that'd be a good thing to note down now so you can remember to do so later i'm gonna give you 30 seconds whilst i drink some coffee uh, for you to think on that great i'm i'm just going to jump in there matt and um, we just uh, had someone uh, message in regarding that earlier question about whether pigs uh, were considered unclean before the law uh, genesis uh, chapter 9 verse 3 is very helpful in that it says everything yeah. This is the instruction that was given to, to Noah by God. And, and God pretty much said to Noah, everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I give you the green plants and I give you everything. So it, it seems as if on our, our animals seem to be fair game, um, in your words, uh, before then, before, the, before the, the law was given. So hopefully that helps clear that up a little yeah. bit. Um, that, that's very helpful, Andy. Um, the reason I hesitated because uh, was um, when God gives instructions for Noah about the ark, he he speaks about only clean animals coming in, <clears throat> um, and that threw up to me like a question of whether there was some sense of what was clean and what was not clean beforehand. Um, but but clearly, when God says in chapter nine, "Eat all flesh," that does seem to imply all flesh. So it's probably a bit of both, then, isn't it? It's probably a bit of like um, God's people did have an idea of what was clean and unclean, but but for the Israelites after Sinai, what they actually eat is to reflect that. So there's like a heightening of of the cleanliness laws for God's people for this special time. Mm. Um, that's very helpful. Great. I am. I'm loving the way you're kind of just pointing to Jesus through Leviticus. It's really helpful. I'm also loving how many animals your son has um, in his <laughs> animal collection. I'm thinking my son doesn't have any animals. He's just got cars. So uh, I think I'd really have struggled with his toy selection to, to illustrate this. So, so well done um, and for Thank negotiating you. with your son to get those animals. Um, yeah, so that's great. Um, yeah. So I was thinking um, we could maybe just have, uh, do you wanna just have like a five minute coffee break? And then we can just continue with uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy and Sin. How does that sound? Yeah, I think we should do that. I think let's have a little break. I'm just going to work out how I want to structure the rest of the time. Um, we will make sure we finish on time. Um, and I will make sure we get through everything as well. Just bits of it, maybe a bit more highlights. Um, so let's have, what do you think, five or ten minutes? Yeah, 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 five or ten minutes. Do you want to say, okay, let's say um, 10, 10 50. We'll come back at 10 50 and we'll continue the rest uh, of the material then. So if you haven't already got yourself a tea, coffee, go grab yourself one. Uh, we've got a 10 minute break. All right, great. great. Well, welcome back, everyone. I uh, hope you managed to get yourself uh, a nice cup of tea or coffee and a little bit of time to 
to, to rest uh, and uh, just reflect on what we've learned here this morning. We're going to continue on this morning with the next two books, uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Uh, so yeah, uh, back to you, Matt. Right. Okay. So I'm going to go for another 25 minutes, guys, um, through Numbers, Deuteronomy. And we'll have another short break, and then we'll do <clears throat> our doctrine session. Uh, so let's jump into uh, the book of Numbers. <clears throat> and same structure, we're going to kind of think about uh, the book with our minds and the story first, and then we'll think about reading it with eyes of faith, our hearts full of hope and a desire to love. Uh, so uh, Numbers in Hebrew, the name is uh, Bam Ibar. Um, and it literally means in the wilderness, which is a very um, fitting kind of name for it. And I think a much better description than Numbers. Um, the English translation calls it numbers because there is a lot of numbering of God's people in the text, uh, but frankly that doesn't really kind of set pulses racing, does it, in terms of an exciting read. Um, but actually numbers is a, is a wonderful book um, that I think we can get a lot out of because it's about the journey of God's people out of slavery and into God's promises. It's about their disobedience along the way and the journey, but also God's mercy to them. Um, and so there's lots to take from this book. There are many things which are quite tricky to get your head around in it. Um, but uh, all in all, it's a very rich book with a lot to offer. <clears throat> um, so the kind of overall story is um, God has given them the law at Mount Sinai, he's given them the tabernacle, the instructions for the tabernacle uh, in Leviticus, um, <clears throat> and then they set out. So actually, if you were to do a kind of, uh, kind of timeline, you've got the end of Exodus um, where God, well, you kind of got the middle bit of Exodus where God gives the law. Then you've got, they build the tabernacle um, and then they kind of start to set out. So you've got the bit of, bit of numbers kind of starts off. And then in Numbers, you kind of read about them building the tabernacle and then the book of Leviticus happens. So actually, Leviticus kind of takes place within the first few chapters of the book of Numbers. Um, and so God's people set out from Mount Sinai on their journey into the land of Canaan, the promised land. And this journey should take um, about two weeks on foot. If you and I were to go for a walking holiday and walk from Mount Sinai through into modern day uh, Israel, it would take about two weeks. But it takes the Israelites 40 years because of their various disobedience. God keeps them in the wilderness um, for that time, wandering around. He hems them in, um, disorientates them, and will unpack that. The, the way that the story uh, of Numbers kind of unfolds um, is it's mostly historical narrative um, with the odd bit of kind of political and religious legislation in there. So you'll kind of have the story and then all of a sudden there'll be two or three chapters where God will give instructions for particular uh, ceremonies or the way that they're to live together. And sometimes these can seem like rather odd arbitrary intrusions in the story. So, you know, you're reading the story, it's all good, and all of a sudden you've got this rather strange um, description of uh, a law to judge whether a woman has been faithful to her husband or not. Um, and at first glance, these moments seem like kind of very odd intrusions into the story. 
but often what numbers does is it focuses on a particular law which embodies broader themes of the book so uh, i mentioned uh, the instance in chapter five this test for whether a woman has been faithful to her husband um, and the first one you think why is that there but, but it's setting up this broader way of thinking about um, the journey of numbers where uh, god's people his bride are going to be unfaithful to him throughout the rest of the book and it's kind of getting us to think in that way um, you know and or in other cases uh, it will be that god gives particular kind of laws to remind them of his holiness or to keep them from doing certain things that the nations around them are doing so although these moments can often seem a little bit odd uh, when you read them it's good to kind of try and think what's going on in the rest of the picture the uh, rest of the story which might pick up on some of these themes the book can be structured around kind of various parts of the journey <clears throat> i think you've got this in your notes um, chapters one to ten um, are the wilderness of sinai um, so when they set out from um, the mountain at sinai um, and um, it starts off uh, this section with god ordering moses to count the people um, and the heads of the tribes this is where the book takes the name numbers from um, and then uh, god instructs them how they are to set out as a people and this is very interesting um, they are to march with four tribes sorry three tribes at the front three tribes at the back three tribes to the side three tribes to the side and then in the very heart of the camp is the tabernacle and so they're to move in a cross shaped this kind of uh, thing which moves throughout the wilderness with the tabernacle being at the center god gives them instructions as to how the tabernacles to be set up and taken down and carried um lots of detail which you can get a bit bogged down in but the you know this is this is god uh teaching his people that as they move um and they're on this journey the most important thing for them isn't the practicalities of how do we get from a to b but it's how they journey with him how they prize his presence at the heart of their community um, in these chapters there's a number of laws uh, five laws which are given about ritual cleanliness and uncleanliness sin and righteousness faithfulness and infidelity devotion to god and apostrophe and these are themes that the rest of the book is going to explore and israel is going to be found to fall short on all of those fronts um, <clears throat> the section finishes uh, with the completion of the tabernacle um, the people make a mass offering to god um, and they celebrate the passover a year after they left egypt and then they set out chapter 10 to 12 um, is their journey from sinai onwards um, so things appear to start very well everybody falls into line the presence of god is with them they follow the cloud of god's presence by day and the pillar of fire by night um, but sadly it doesn't take long for them to complain uh, god's people grumble that they miss the food in egypt they say that even when we were slaves we had things better remarkably they say remember the cucumbers we had in egypt i mean i like cucumbers as much as the next man but uh this bizarre complaint 
that they almost wish they were back in the conditions of their slavery under pagan masters rather than following God through the hardship of being in the wilderness. Um, and so uh, Moses despairs about this. And you have this very interesting moment where Moses kind of says, I can't do it. And what God does is he takes a portion of the Holy Spirit that he's been given, that he's given to Moses, and he uh, distributes it amongst elders in the camp. Um, and so God is essentially kind of uh, taking the relationship he has with Moses, the grace that he's given to Moses, and he's, he's giving it to other leaders. And there's this kind of eruption of kind of spiritual activity amongst the camp, and people start prophesying, um, and uh, people are kind of concerned as to what's going on. Moses says, no, this is a good thing. Um, I can't do this on my own. I need God to equip God's people to minister to one another. And of course, this is a wonderful kind of anticipation of what the New Testament church is going to be like. That's me getting ahead, reading with my eyes of faith, keeping our minds on the story for now. So, um, oh, and this section finishes with uh, a very sad story where Moses's brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, they complain, they grumble um, about Moses's leadership. And Miriam is struck with leprosy as a result of it. Um, the third section um, is when we leave, um, sorry, the third section is in the wilderness of Paran. Um, so we're moving closer to the promised land. Um, and when we get to Paran, Moses sends out the spies um, to go and suss out the promised land to see, you know, if it's all that God promised it to be and, and what the people there are like. And the spies return. And two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, it's amazing. Let's grow for grapes as big as watermelons. It's all that God promised. Let's take it. The Lord's with us. But the rest of the spies are fearful. And they say, no, we saw the inhabitants. They're like giants. We can't take this. God's brought us out here to die. We're going to be killed, slaughtered. And so the whole of the Israelite people grumble. And they say, uh, they basically don't trust in God's leadership and care for them um, <clears throat> and so God uh, judges them and he says that the, the generation uh, who are responsible at this point in time the adult generation will not inherit the promises they will not enter the land and they Israel will stay in the wilderness until everybody from that generation dies except Moses and then, and except Moses, Caleb, and Joshua, sorry. Um, and this is a tragic, tragic moment because these, this is the generation that God brought out of slavery. These are the people who he said, you are going to be my treasured possession. But because of their hardness of heart, they can't enter into the promises that God has given them. And so God says, it won't be you. It'll be your children. Um, despite that, this older generation go oh no but we do want the promises and so they try to enter into the promised land on their own and they're defeated uh, by uh, a pagan army in there um, they rebel then against moses's leadership and many of them are destroyed um, and then this section finishes off in chapter 19 with god reminding them of his holiness by kind of pointing them back to some of the holiness laws in the fourth section of the book, chapters 20 to 21, um, sees Israel move between different regions in this part of the world, 
Ed, uh, Edom, the Negeb, and Bashan. Um, and things don't really get much better, I'm afraid. Um, in fact, even Moses uh, loses his patience and grumbles against the Lord. And so uh, there's an instance where God tells Moses that he's going to bring water from a rock. And Moses gets frustrated and he hits the rock. Um, and God says, because you lost patience with me, um, you yourself will not enter into the promised land. And this is a heartbreaking moment where Mo even Moses can't enter into God's promises because of the hardness of his heart. God says, you will see it from afar, but you won't enter in. Um, <clears throat> Israel then faced opposition from pagan kings in this area. King of uh, Edom attacks them. Um, they overcome. Uh, Aaron dies, however, at this point in the story. Um, and then again, God's people rebel against Moses and against God. And you have this instance where God sends poisonous snakes amongst the camp. Moses has to build a bronze statue of a snake and hold it up. It's a very strange moment we'll talk about in a minute or two. Um, and then we come into the final section, chapters 22 to 36. This is the longest section of the book. Um, and uh, Israel defeats two pagan kings um, in the Negeb uh, and in Bashan. And then they move into the land of Moab. And the news of Israel's arrival spreads amongst the people of Moab. And the king of Moab, a chap called Balak, uh, gets his um, his local sorcerer, a man called Balaam, uh, to prophesy and to curse God's people. Um, and so you have this very strange moment where uh, Balaam goes up onto the hills into the kind of like um, the, the kind of the, the religious places that the Moabites would go to where they believe their, their gods uh, would kind of hang out. And he tries to curse, tries to evoke kind of like demonic curses upon the Israelites but every time he tries to do it he finds that he prophesies blessing over them and this is a wonderful moment in the story where uh, even though God's people are being such scallywags disobeying God rebelling against him um, here out of sight when demonic forces are trying to curse God's people God is working blessings over them. It's a wonderful picture of God's mercy and grace and his patience and forbearance. And so uh, Balaam utters these three blessings, these three prophecies. And one of them is very important because um, it says that one day <clears throat> a king will rise out of Israel who will rule all of the pagan nations around them. And of course, this is a kind of pointing towards um, the Davidic king, which of course will one day be fulfilled in Jesus. Um, tragically, though, after this incident with Balaam, um, the Israelites start worshipping uh, Moabite gods and sleeping with Moabite women. Um, and then God uh, has to judge them again. Uh, uh, more of them are killed off because of this. Um, and then after this, Moses takes a census, he numbers the people again. The old generation have died off now, they've been killed by pagan kings, poisonous snakes, God's judgment. A new generation are now come of age and ready to go into the promised land. Moses uh, takes another census of them, he numbers them all, and he begins to prepare them for what lies ahead. Um, 
the book finishes with Moses taking offerings from the tribes. Uh, he appoints Joshua to replace him as the leader of God's people. Um, as success, the Israelites defeat the Midianites in battle. Um, and then two of the tribes, Reuben and Gad, decide to settle outside of the Promised Land. Uh, they've taken this land from the Midianites and they want to stay there. Um, so there has to be a bit of discussion as to what that's going to look like. And the book finishes off kind of making plans for life in the Promised Land. So all in all, lots happens in the book of Numbers. It's a big, complicated book with lots of highs and lows. Um, having given you a kind of like a, a survey of the book, let's just spend a bit of time kind of um, thinking about how we read these books as Christians um, and what we can take from them. Um, I think if you turn to the numbers with the eyes of faith and read it, uh, perhaps more than any other book of the Bible, you see God's faithfulness to his promises, that um, he will outwork his purposes through his people, even despite their rebellion and sin against him. Uh, God shows such patience and grace and mercy <clears throat> and a fatherly commitment to bring his people through uh, in the book of Numbers. He blesses them and he disciplines them, uh, but ultimately in order to bring them into promise. Um, and so as we go through our lives, Numbers gives us a perspective for our discipleship, our discipleship through the wilderness of this life, that even though we may sometimes be hard-hearted and rebel against God, he will bless and discipline us in order to bring us into his promises. And thinking about the book of Numbers in that way really opened it up for me to read it and to see God's faithfulness in the past and to think about my own journey through life. Um, and if you think about the New Testament, the New Testament um, says that when someone becomes a Christian, they're born again. There is a new person there, a new man. Um, but there's still this kind of strange relationship for the Christian. Um, that on one hand we're born again, we're a new person, but we also kind of are the old person still. And there's this tension, isn't there? The new and the old. And in the book of Numbers, we see that the old generation of the Israelites has to die off in order that the new might inherit the promises of God. And that is a picture of our lives. The old self has to die in order that the new self might inherit God's promises. And as we go through the, our journey of life, the Lord blesses us and he disciplines us. He leads us in loving kindness and the father disciplines a son that he loves in order that we might inherit the promise. And we have it so much better than the Israelites because the whole generation literally had to die off. <laughs> Whereas for us, it's not that we die so that our children, it's, it's our old selves. The selves which have been shaped by this world and sin and the bad things which have happened to us and the things that we've done, that has to go in order that the new self, the true self, can inherit God's blessings and uh, promises. So uh, Leviticus, uh, sorry, Numbers has a lot to offer. 
a Christian. Um, there's also some very powerful pictures of Jesus in there. So uh, in, um, in the instant where uh, God's people who rebel and poison the snakes come into the camp, um, God um, instructs Moses to build a statue of the snake and hold it up for God's people to look at it. And it's this very strange moment because snakes throughout the Bible are a bad thing. <laughs> Um, snakes are the problem. They represent sin and death and destruction. And so here's God's people being attacked by these snakes, um, being killed off, in fact, by these poisonous snakes. And they're told to look at something which looks like the problem. And John uses that image in his gospel to describe Jesus' as cross. Jesus teaches Nicodemus, in fact, in chapter three, he says, uh, as Moses held the bronze snake up in the wilderness, so you will see the son of man, that's him, lifted up. And on the cross, when Jesus is crucified as a sinner, when he's forsaken by God, he looks like he's the problem that we all experience. Sin, isolation from God, death. And yet this is God mysteriously going to work. It's this wonderful, powerful picture that John picks up from Numbers. Um, so there's plenty to read in Numbers with the eyes of faith. As we read it with hearts full of hope, we see that, you know, God takes us on a journey and he will bring us into his promises. Um, and as we read it with the desire to love, um, we see God's wonderful patience in the book of Numbers, almost like we, like nowhere else in scripture. <clears throat> you know, Numbers teaches us that love is patient and kind, doesn't envy or boast, it's not arrogant or rude, um, doesn't rejoice at wrongdoings, but it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so we see uh, God patiently loving us and we see Moses trying his best to endure with God's people and love them and it gives us a picture for how we are to love and serve other people to forgive them 77 times to be patient with them to have this perspective that God is at work to to yes to, to bring the old to the end but so that the new man might inherit um, and it just gives us that perspective for loving other people, particularly when they're difficult, particularly when their progress in discipleship seems slow. Um, numbers gives us a framework for seeing actually how God is at work through that. So let's just uh, give you a moment to kind of pause and reflect on the book of Numbers. Big, complicated book, but lots going on there, lots to take from it. Um, what's made your heart burn? What stirred you? And what would you want to go back and look at another time? Take a moment just to jot those down. Now, I've got an exercise for you in your notes. It's a page which looks like this. Um, and I've got four passages from the book of Numbers um, for you to go and look at um, and to just try reading them with these four senses going on you know a, a, these four senses alert um you know mind on a story eyes of faith hearts full of uh, hope and a desire to love
and they will be a kind of exercise for you to kind of just get used to reading numbers in that way if we were all together and uh had a bit more time i'd get you into groups to do that but um alas uh not today um but that will be a, that will really serve you well to kind of just exercise and to kind of reflect on some of these things so um i'm just looking at the time uh we're going to jump into deuteronomy um and the Andy and I have been kind of messing each other back and forth to try and navigate through this um, to make sure we're serving you. I think we'll get through Deuteronomy fairly quickly, Andy, and I think I, I still want to make sure they have a five minute break before we go into the next session. Um, so uh, shake your legs, stand up, turn around, whatever you need to do, uh, just to kind of aliven yourself, and then we're going to jump into Deuteronomy. So <clears throat> Deuteronomy. Um, is a strange name for the book, uh, which comes kind of from uh, various sources through the Latin, through the Greek, back to the Hebrew. And it, it literally, the, the book title in its various languages literally means second law, um, which isn't to say that this is a replacement for the law that God gave at Mount Sinai. Rather, this is Moses kind of telling the law a second time, teaching it a second time. And Deuteronomy picks up where the book of Numbers finishes. So um, the book of Numbers finishes with the old generation of Israelites who first heard the law at Sinai and have all died off. The next generation are ready to inherit the promises. And Moses is going to teach them the law again. And really, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses's kind of farewell speech to God's people. He knows he's about to die. He knows he can't enter into the promised land. Um, and so he is instructing um, God's people, the new generation, of how to live when they receive the promise. Um, and it's a wonderful book, um, Deuteronomy. It's um, sometimes you can find it a bit frustrating reading it because it repeats itself a lot. Um, but the reason it does that is Deuteronomy is Moses's attempt to really kind of massage the heart of God's law into his people. Um, this is Moses as a seasoned leader at the end of his life. And he really understands the important things now. And he wants to really kind of uh, address the hearts of these young Israelites. Um, and so he wants to repeat himself again and again, because it's about, um, it's about getting the truth of the law into our minds and into our hearts and living it out. Um, he's really concerned with their hearts, how they respond to God. Um, so let me break down the structure of the book. It really kind of falls into kind of three sections, uh, chapters 1 to 11, um, 12 to 26, and then 27 to 33. Um, and let me kind of break down what happens in each one of those sections. So in the first section, chapters 1 to 11, uh, Moses gives a summary of the story so far, um, how God saved his people out of slavery in Egypt, brought them out uh, dramatically through the plagues and through the Red Sea, brought them to Sinai, gave them the law, but God's people rebelled. Moses tells a story to remind this new generation of how their predecessors got it wrong. They had hard hearts. They were unfaithful. And Moses is encouraging the new generation to trust the Lord 
where their fathers didn't trust the Lord, they are to trust the Lord. Um, he reminds them of God's grace to them. He repeats the Ten Commandments. And then in this section, he introduces in chapter 10 a very important message that Deuteronomy will pick up again and again. And in fact, the New Testament, particularly the Apostle Paul, will really take from Deuteronomy that God's people are to circumcise their hearts. Now, this will be a little bit, um, well, be a bit painful to think of, but we have to go there, I'm afraid, because it's a very important image. Circumcision. Um, so let's think about what happens in circumcision. Um, and I'm going to have to be graphic, I'm afraid. Uh, in the Jewish custom, the Israelite custom of circumcision, um, the foreskin of the male genitalia is cut off. Now, um, the foreskin is that fleshy, unsensitive part of skin which kind of protects the male genitalia. Um, uh, sorry to, to have to go into detail about this. Um, it doesn't have any nerve endings. It's unfeeling. It's, uh, it doesn't, it's unsensitive. Um, and in the act of circumcision, that unsensitive part of the genitalia is cut off to expose the sensitive. And Moses is saying <clears throat> that really circumcision um, is a picture of what needs to happen to the heart of God's people. And the Apostle Paul will say circumcision is really a matter of the heart. And he's, he's just, he's riffing off Moses there. Moses is saying you need to have the this sensitive part of your heart exposed to God. You need to cut off the unsensitive part of the human heart. <clears throat> and Moses is going to go on a bit of a journey throughout Deuteronomy with this image. He'll come back to it a few times. Um, and in chapter 10, he says, you need to circumcise your hearts. Um, it's a very powerful image. Um, <clears throat> these chapters uh, also include a very famous um, prayer. Uh, or a kind of a creedal statement, a statement of belief that the Israelites have in chapter six, the uh, Samar, Shema, um, where Moses it teaches the Israelites to say every day, listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and strength. Um, this is an expression that the Israelites would say every day of this love and trust for God. Chapters 12 to 26 um, <clears throat> is Moses giving a kind of reiteration and reinterpretation of the law that he received at Sinai. Um, there's lots to do with leadership, structures, right worship and social justice in these chapters. Um, and then in chapters 27 to 33, um, uh, Moses sets before the Israelites the consequences of obedience or disobedience. He says, I set before you today life and death. If you're obedient, you choose life, you will receive God's blessing. Um, and he paints a picture of what that looks like. And if you choose disobedience, there will be curse. And he paints a picture of what that will look like. And these chapters of Deuteronomy are really important for how you read the rest of the Old Testament, because Moses prophesies what is going to happen. Um, he says, I know, I've been around you Israelites long enough. I know what the human heart is like. You will rebel. 
and one day God is going to send you into exile. Um, he's going to scatter you, pagans will come, overthrow you because of your hard, stubborn hearts and scatter you around the world. But when that happens, God will come and find you and he will bring you back out of exile. And then remember what Moses said in chapter 10 about you need to circumcise your hearts. He knows that they can't do that. He knows that they won't do that. And so he says that after this exile story happens, God will come. He will find them, restore his people, and then God will circumcise their hearts. And of course, this image is then picked up later in the Old Testament by Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who talk about how God will give us new hearts by the Holy Spirit. Um, and so uh, Moses really sets us up to understand the rest of the Old Testament story. Um, the book finishes with Moses blessing Israel. He prophesies over the different tribes of Israel. He appoints Joshua as his successor. And then he finally departs. He climbs a mountain and sees the promised land from afar and dies. And very mysteriously, it says that God buries Moses. I have no idea what that looks like, but it's, it's there. Um, and then the book finishes with Israel mourning uh, the death of Moses, and then they follow Joshua into the promised land. <clears throat> so let's, um, <clears throat> let's do two things before we take a break in a minute. I'm just going to jump ahead a few pages in your notes uh, to deal with a question which came in earlier on about the violence that is described in these books, particularly in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, because as God's people are entering into the promised land, God gives some very strong instructions for them to wipe out, to kill the inhabitants of the land, um, even women and children. Um, and you've got a quote in your notes from um, everybody's favourite atheist, Richard Dawkins, <clears throat> um, kind of reflecting on these violent passages uh, of the Old Testament and how, um, you know, it paints a picture of a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleansing God. Um, and so this is a real question which comes out of the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, and you've got quite full notes there for you to kind of work through that. But I just want to kind of give you the highlights um, of how to make sense of these passages. Uh, because they're troubling for the Christian. Um, and there's a tension even within the book of Deuteronomy, uh, because God instructs God's people to, um, to do well, to bless and to protect the foreigner who comes amongst them, the alien or the stranger. Um, and so on one hand, God is instructing his people to lovingly welcome and receive um, people from outside of the Israelite nation. But then on the other hand, he's instructing them to go in and kill and to wipe out um, these people. So how do we make sense of this? Well, um, <clears throat> I think the first thing we have to bear in mind is that these instructions are given to Israel with their, um, their spiritual purity in mind. So the reason God says you are to go and wipe these people out um, is because he doesn't want Israel to associate with these nations and to be led astray by them. 
So when God gives these violent instructions to Israel, his focus here, the task in mind, is Israel being vigilant of keeping themselves spiritually pure, not being led, led astray. And so that's the focus, not the individual lives of these people that God has created. Here, God's saying, Israel, you need to be vigilant about this. And this uh, finds parallels in the New Testament. Um, so in chapter eight of Romans, Paul says, by the spirit, we have to put to death the deeds of the flesh. The Christian is called to be violent in putting to death sin in our life. Think about Jesus saying, you know, if your hand leads you to sin, cut it off. It's better to cut it off than to be thrown into hell. Now, of course, he's speaking hyperbolically here, uh, but there's a similar kind of principle of you've got to take action to keep yourself from, from being led astray. That's the focus of these passages. The nations that are being judged here are wicked nations. Um, they're practicing things like the sacrifice of their children. You can go to the British Museum in London um, and see uh, statues of bronze altars with their hands out here, which used to be heated up to, to you know, very high temperatures. And these nations would put um, their babies onto these, these boiling statues to burn them alive and sacrifice to their gods. I mean, the, this is a rough period of history. And God is bringing judgment upon these nations. But the Bible helps us understand how uh, kind of how the Bible frames this judgment. So if you go back to Genesis and chapter 15, when Abraham is in the Canaanite land, he's amongst these nations. God says, one day I'm going to put you, bring your people to dwell in this land and you will judge these nations but but you're not to do it now and in chapter 15 god says this he says the iniquity of these people is not yet complete so what god is telling us there is that these nations have not yet reached a point of no return um that god was still being patient with them still in his mysterious own way calling them back to know him and by the time we get to the point where Israel come in to cleanse the land. God says they've got to the point where we have to do something about it. And that makes us think about modern day examples where violent force has been a positive and redemptive thing. Think about the liberation of the concentration camps at the end of the Second World War. Think about when soldiers fought their way into Auschwitz and released those who were suffering unimaginable torture and horrors there. <clears throat> of course, God doesn't condone any violence. He doesn't, uh, violence is a problem within God's creation. And when God ultimately restores all things, there will be no violence in the creation. But, um, in the process of, of fallen history, there are moments when violence is redemptive, when violence is necessary to release those who are under terrible uh, situations. Um, and there's something of that at work here. Now, that doesn't, what I've just shared there are principles for making sense of those moments in the, in the book of Deuteronomy in particular. Um, you have to still prayerfully work through them yourselves. 
let's just kind of um, pull back slightly and just kind of conclude our reflections in Deuteronomy um, by thinking by thinking about reading the book with the eyes of faith. Um, Deuteronomy gives us this picture of how you know we are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, but we can't do that on our own. We need our unsensitive, unfeeling hearts to be dealt with. So Deuteronomy paints a wonderful picture of how God will one day do that, how he will circumcise our hearts by the Spirit. Um, <clears throat> and there's a number of uh, moments in the book of Deuteronomy which um, really point us towards Jesus in the way that kind of the rites in Leviticus had done. And in the exercise that you've got over the page, um, you've got uh, four passages from Deuteronomy to work through. Um, and hopefully they will point you towards uh, how Jesus is set out there. Um, I'll leave that kind of uh, for you to go and find, tantalizingly for you to, to look at yourself. As Christians, you know, we are preparing ourselves to enter into the, an eternity of God's promises. Um, and so with hearts full of hope, you know, as we read Deuteronomy, we're our minds are being kind of caught up to that promise that actually we are soon to inherit all of God's promises. Our eyes are being pointed forward to that. And Deuteronomy is full of instruction as to how we are to love our neighbours, how we're to welcome the alien and stranger amongst us, um, how we are to love God by putting to death those things in ourselves that would lead us to be led astray. Um, it's a wonderful book, Deuteronomy. It gives us a a picture of kind of yeah how to prepare our hearts how to kind of be discipled um, as we journey into God's promises so I hope that's whetted your appetite to read that book and Numbers and Leviticus I hope that's um, I know there's lots in there but hopefully your notes and the exercise I've given you should um, set you up to read these books as Christian disciples that was my aim we're going to take a, a short five minute break if that's okay Andy <clears throat> um, uh, open a window, get some fresh air because we're going to um, think about the doctrine of sin in a minute. Um, so we've got a bit more work to do this morning. It's tiring stuff doing it on Zoom, um, but there's good stuff for us to come in this next session. Uh, so five minutes and we come back at what time do you make it, Andy? Let's come back at 11.37. Very specific. <laughs> Very specific. Good stuff. Great. See you in a bit. <laughs>